Pastor Cole said we are in a new series called Beginning with Wisdom, in which we are exploring uh, the book of James. I am so excited that as we begin this year, we really lean into this concept of wisdom. And last week, we talked about this idea that wisdom is not only knowing, but living out God's ways. And so this morning, we're going to be, we're going to be exploring James chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about faith and deeds. But before we do, i got to say, one of the things as I get older that I love is, is reflecting on um, just like not only a day, but a week, a month, a season. And one of the things, as I've been reflecting lately, that I have been so grateful for is how much I have things in my life that my two sons look at me and say, why are you the way that you are? Any parent understand what I'm saying? They look at you and they think, why do you do the things that you do? Which is a beautiful thing, right? Because every parent knows we are doing that to them, right? There's often times that my kids do things and I say, why are you the way that you are? And I mean that both in love, but also like, you know, there's moments that they do silly things and you're like, why did you do that? Recently, my boys uh, had one of those moments with me. It was a cold day. And more often than not, on a, a, a weekday, because of our preschool, um, oftentimes, and, and on a Sunday morning, oftentimes we'll park towards um, the back of the parking lot. And my son Silas looked at me and said, Daddy, why do we have to walk in the cold? There is a lot of parking spots closer. That's the way he talks. And I told him, well, I learned something from Papa, who is my dad. And he said, well, what'd you learn? How to walk farther? And I'm like, well, technically, yes. I said, a long time ago, when, um, when Daddy was growing up, Papa was a pastor at a, a church um, in West Michigan, where we got a lot of snow and it would get really cold. And he pastored this church for 19 years. And for 19 years, uh, it was this church that never got, got maybe more than 150 people and kind of had a small parking lot. It was in the downtown of our um, little community, Greenville, Michigan, um, which today I have to imagine, even though they have been dumped on with snow, their hearts are warm and their faith is hot as the Detroit Lions will go into the playoffs, hosting a playoff game today. So if we can take a moment to pray for that game, um, every head, I'm just kidding. Um, pray for me later that, that the thoughts of Christ will be on my mind. Um, pray for my soul. Anyways, uh, in this small town, though, it was kind of interesting. At some point in the life of this church, um, in this small parking lot that did not have a ton of parking spaces, um, they had two spaces that were kind of like the prime ones. And at some point in um, the history of that church, those spots were, were the pastor's spots for whatever reason. And one of the things uh, that as I, as I reflect on my life, especially with my parents uh, as they get older, there are things that I learn and see from them that I'm like, gosh, like, that's awesome. You might not have said something to me, but you showed me things. And one of the things I always appreciate about my dad is the fact that he pretty much would never park in that spot. Um, he thought it was kind of silly that it was there, and almost every time he would end up parking, whether there was a foot of snow or whether it was hot outside, he would park in a parking lot that was sort of like a community parking lot um, for people going downtown that was across the street. And I remember like having conversations at times with my dad when I would ride into church with him and there was a foot of snow like, hey dad, there's like not going to be very many people at church today, like we probably could just park over there. But there was, there was kind of this like principle for him in which part of being a leader is being a servant leader. And part of being a, a person of faith who, who follows after the model of Jesus is this idea of being a person of humility. 
And that there sometimes is important things for us as followers of Jesus to, to take small little acts that remind us over and over this call to be a person of humility. And I always really appreciated that about my dad. And so that's why um, I tell my boys, which they didn't like that long-winded story, why we park in the back sometimes. You see, humility is one of these beautiful things that we're going to talk about this morning as we talk about our, our, our faith and our deeds aligning up together. Because as we look at the life and the teaching of Jesus, uh, he over and over shows us that there will be this call for us if we want to be like him to think of others more than ourselves. And one of the most beautiful things about the gospel is the fact that it oftentimes can hold together tensions that we feel like should be at odds. And this morning, I hope you know that there, there, there's this tension that is both weird and true, that you are both exceedingly valuable as a person, and you are also not as important as you might want to think. You are both the most special creation that God has ever had, and you also are not as hot to trot as you might want to think you are. And when we come to a place of understanding that, that's the real sweet spot. Now, as we begin this morning, as we dive into James chapter 2, we need to be reminded, right, James is talking to a group of Christ followers who primarily would have been all around kind of the known world at that time, and he was primarily writing to people from a Jewish background. And so they would come from a background in religion, in culture, in society, where they really would have cared about kind of like a hierarchical approach to life and society, that there would be people who are at the top end and people who are at the lower end. And as James writes to them, he really wants to begin to upend that in their life. And so he begins by saying this in James chapter 2, and it's going to be on the screen behind me, but if you want to follow along, I'm starting in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, when he, when he uses this word favoritism, as I was kind of studying all these scholarly people who are much smarter than I am, uh, they, they, they talked about how this word favoritism really has a link more towards um, honor or respect, and that in particular, if you kind of take the word back in its Old Testament context, it again had this sort of um, feeling that it's not just a favoritism like how you have a favorite kid. All right, parents, real quick, raise your hand if you have a favorite kid. Raise your hand if you're lying. I'm just kidding. It's fine. Raise your hand if you are the favorite child in your family. Yeah, there's, there's some liars in this house. Lord, forgive them. But this idea of favoritism isn't like, hey, you get, you get more stuff than your siblings or things like that. It had more to do with this sense of, of honor and kind of like a pecking order in many ways. And James goes on and he says this, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand right there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, every time in scripture, right, that there is something like this given as an example written to, it obviously means these things are happening. And so Jesus wants to, or, or, or James, um, 
feels a burden from Jesus to deal with these issues that are infiltrating the church. Because, again, in, in sort of a Jewish culture, some of this would have been normal. There, there almost would have been like, hey, here's the VIP seating of the synagogue. Come over here if you're one of the in crowd. There would have been a piece where, because of the um, institutional nature of it at times, there probably was preferential treatment given to people of power and wealth and prestige. And yet James says, like, this is not how things should be. You see, Jesus taught and showed us that humility would be one of the highest values in his kingdom. Like, it's impossible to look at the life and teachings of Jesus, his example, his attitudes, and say, that guy was all about climbing the corporate ladder in success and power, right? Like, what's wild to me over and over is every moment in which Jesus is given an opportunity to take on more power, more prestige, any of those things, he's constantly rejecting it. He's constantly either pointing up to his father or he's trying to say, no, 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 I'm here to serve others. And the truth is, that should be our heart, our posture, the way we live as well. I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything wrong with trying to be successful or, 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 or working hard, things of that nature, but we have to be careful as followers of Jesus to say, at what cost? At the end of the day, our highest call is to have great relationship with our Father and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And here's the thing. If we have to step on our neighbors to make it to the next level in our life, that's not love. Now, James continues on with this kind of concept by saying this. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into courts? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And he goes on by saying this. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbors as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. Now, it's kind of shots fired. And it's an impressive thing, right? Because think about this um, history in this time. James is writing as the church is young. It is still kind of in its infancy trying to figure out how it will operate, how it will run. And one of the most striking things to think about is these probably would have been very offensive words to probably some very powerful, wealthy, influential people in different churches, whether it be in Jerusalem or beyond them. And one of the things that I appreciate about James and his example is his desire to tell the truth no matter what. Because as we know, as Scripture says, the truth will set you free. And so he tells the truth. And one of the reasons why he tells this truth is this really important thing that we sometimes have to be reminded of. It's a no-duh concept, but I think a lot of us kind of like brush it off like, yeah, yeah, whatever. That how we treat others can put separation between us and God. We call it sin. And there's this reality that over and over in Scripture... We, we tend to see that the admonishment towards sin, the things that are most dangerous, are not just the individual sins that we are dealing with ourselves, but oftentimes are sins that deeply affect others. 
Do you remember in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus separates the, the sheep from the goats and he's talking about judgment? If you remember, he does not go through and say, uh, sorry, you're not in because you didn't read your Bible enough. Sorry, you didn't come into church when it was negative five degrees outside. Sorry, you're not in. That's for you online. You can laugh at that, please. And that's not to discount the things that are important as an individual, but over and over he says, hey, you didn't get in because you didn't give me a drink of water when I was thirsty. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was hungry, you didn't give me something to eat. The, probably the fastest way to separate ourselves from our Heavenly Father has to do with how we treat others. That Jesus was serious when he said, hey, the two most important things is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And every parent knows this over and over, right? The most important way that you love a parent is loving their children. And so honestly, the most important way that you can love God is how you will love your neighbors, how you'll treat them. And he says this because it's important for us to realize that we can't show favoritism. We can't neglect other people and only invite other people in. And he uses the example of the rich and the poor, but I think it goes across the line. It goes across the line with, 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 with race and gender and socioeconomic status, with political affiliation, all of these sort of things. We must love and embrace people and meet them where they are and love them because that is how they will find the love of our Father. Now, James continues on by saying this, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he said, uh, you shall not commit adultery. I also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now, this is harsh terms, right? Because while also like it's true, right? Love covers a multitude of sin. Every single one of us in here are banking on the grace of Jesus, right? I, I don't know about you guys, but did anyone, especially if, if you grew up in church and may, maybe you grew up in a church maybe at times that was a little bit legalistic, did you ever used to get worried like, what, 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 if I, what if I die before I can confess that sin? What if I get in a car accident and I'm about to slam on my brakes and I yell out a curse word? Like, am I, am I going to hell then? Like, how am I getting in? Anyone ever thought those weird little things through? And it's this funny thing, right? Because we, we are so like about certain things. And, and, and again, the grace of God is so much bigger than us. It's so much bigger. God has accounted for our messes and our mistakes. But I think just because he's done that, it doesn't mean that we should, should not grow, uh, that, that we, should, we should grow comfortable with our sin. We should not grow comfortable with our sin. We should not grow comfortable with this, like, that's just the way I am, that's just the way I'll be. Like, there's a piece where we actually have to, like, look at our life and see the fact of maybe how we're thinking of others, how we're treating others, how we're living our life. And we can't just be like, God's grace is cool. I'll deal with this later. Not. Like there has to be this intentional looking at our lives and saying, if I really want to live a life of wisdom, which is living within God's will and God's ways, I might actually need to make decisions that reflect that. I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this concept of cheap grace. And it's this concept of essentially how some people have cheapened grace by their understanding that God's grace is always there, it's always good. And so it's almost like, well, why don't I just like go full bore and just sin as much as I can because he already, he paid for it, so why shouldn't I? 
And yet he talks about this concept that when we do that, we cheapen God's grace, that God's grace is something that when we actually understand it, when we see it, when we experience it, it should be our goal not to live a sense of fear where we're just constantly worried about our sin, but where out of our sense of love and out of a sense of obedience, we actually try to live the life that he called us to live. Now, James continues on by saying this, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy uh, will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I love that. Um, I love that. It's somewhat of a callback to Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 when he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And and like a, a basic Christianity following Jesus 101 is just this. Give mercy, find mercy. Find mercy, give mercy. And it's this repeating thing over and over again. That in some ways it becomes this cycle. And the issue is oftentimes people, sometimes they find the mercy, but then they don't give the mercy. Or they they give the mercy and they don't find it back and they stop the cycle. Over and over, followers of Jesus should follow the example of him. And we should find mercy and give mercy and give mercy and find mercy over and over. What good, it is, good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith change them? Now, this is the moment where um, James begins to kind of transition from just talking about favoritism but into this idea of is the faith, is your beliefs actually worth anything? And he begins to talk about this correlation, this connection between what we say we believe and what we do. Now, this is a really important thing. I've, I've been reading this book that I got recently called The Great Dechurching, and it's been talking about um, the reality that currently we are experiencing um, the greatest shift in um, people's engagement and attendance in church in American history. Prior to this, the greatest shifts had been post-world or post-Civil War when actually more people began going to church and engaging in church. <laughs> now there's actually less people. There's more people leaving. In fact, it said that um, there were these things called uh, the Great Awakening, uh, the Great Reawakening, and then maybe you've heard of like the Billy Graham Crusades. There's now been more people who have become de-churched people in the last 25 years than the amount of people who became church people in all of those times before. Now, so much of this has to do, in my opinion, with the fact that many followers of Jesus have been people who say they have faith, but their deeds do not align up with it. And so in many ways, people have seen the church, they've seen parents or grandparents or people who who, who proclaim Jesus, and they say, I see what you say, but I also see what you do, and they do not match up. And I have this wild and crazy idea that if followers of Jesus would begin to say, this is what we believe from Scripture, and our lives actually aligned up with it, I actually think there would be so many people who would be attracted to that. In a world full of chaos and misinformation, all that sort of stuff, to actually see people who follow through on what they say, including things like grace and mercy, are you kidding me? It could literally change the world. Now, James continues on by saying this when he's talking about this idea of faith and deeds. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, 
if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now, I love this because, honestly, James essentially hits up this concept of um, the, the, the classic on Facebook, right? Big thing happens in someone's life, what's the go-to comment, right? Thoughts and prayers. Now, I don't want to discount the power of prayer. Prayer is one of the most important powerful things we can do. But I will be honest. I, I, I will fully admit my sin. There have been moments, not, not every single thing, but there have been moments where I have basically given people, hey, here's my thoughts and prayers. And two things have happened. One, I probably haven't prayed as much as I probably should. And two, there's probably things I could have actually done to try to physically meet a need, to donate something, to show up in their need, to just be able to walk with them. And I'm guessing if we had enough time to sit around in sort of a kumbaya powwow, I think some of you would probably admit the same thing. As some might say, talk is cheap. There is this reality that we actually have to deal with these. Now, the thing is, a lot of people, though, end up getting it twisted, right? There's, in fact, there's been some scholars who, who didn't like James. They would say, this book is not good because it's trying to make it seem like to actually have salvation, it's through works and things like that. And I say, nay, nay. If we read James, I love how he says at the end here, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You see, we are saved by grace, but we are also compelled by grace to be the hands and feet of Jesus. If you've been around here long enough, you know I love talking about trees and fruits, and in particular when it comes to our faith. And, and as I've said many times, you could tell me uh, that you have an apple tree, but if I see oranges growing on it, I'm sorry, that is not an apple tree. That's an orange tree. Because Jesus said, a tree will be known by its fruit. And in the same way, we are known by our actions and our attitudes. We can say that we are gracious people, but if we do not act gracious towards people, in particular our enemies, you're not. We can say that we are patient and kind, but if we have words that seek to tear down others, if we make decisions that put deep sort of separation and oppression down on people, that's not kind. How we actually live matters. And, and honestly, the hard part is we could say that we have belief in Jesus, but if our actions and our attitudes and our thought processes and the way that we seek to love our neighbor doesn't really align with him, the talk is cheap. And again, there's a reason why there's been tons of people who have stepped away from faith because they have encountered people who say one thing and do another. And we oftentimes call these people hypocrites. And here's the thing. I'm just as bad as anyone else. Because every single one of us have some levels of hypocrisy in our life. Again, that's where we're going back to this idea that love covers a multitude of sin. But we also have to be honest with ourselves about those. We need to pray prayers like, God, would you show me where I'm missing the mark? Would you help me get to a better place? James continues on by saying this, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? This is when he decides, again, he's talking to a primarily Jewish crowd who's probably reading these. He decides, I'm going to go Old Testament style on you. He says, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Again, 
Just a reminder, righteousness is a fancy church word that essentially means right relationship. Righteousness is not about having it all together. Righteousness is not about being perfect, but righteousness is about having a right relationship with God. And so he, he says, again, righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted, uh, it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now again, do not get it twisted. It is the faith, it is the blood of Jesus Christ that ultimately puts us into the right relationship with God. But ultimately, faith, right? Faith that is untested in some ways is useless. Every single person who desires to fully follow Jesus has to have a moment or moments, or really if we want to take the words of Jesus seriously when he says daily die to ourselves and take up our cross, actually do things that lead us to actually put our weight down on the faith that we say we have and see if it's actually worth anything. Here's the most awesome thing. In all my experience, I've never once had a moment where God called me to do something and live in a certain way where he let me down. He never pulled the, the chair out behind me like my brothers used to. Every single time I found myself there. Doesn't mean it wasn't scary. <laughs> Doesn't mean there weren't times where I thought, wow, that chair was pretty low. But every single time, he took care of me. He wraps up with one last example from the Old Testament by saying this. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Friends, you see, right actions will lead to right relationship, which is righteousness. When you get your actions and your beliefs together, that's when you're cooking with gas and things are really good. As we wrap things up, let me, let me give you kind of three, three quick things that I, I, I think could be helpful for us if we wanted to live a wise life as a person whose faith and deeds really actually come together. Here's the first thing. Uh, you need to align your allegiance to Christ with your actions and attitudes. So and this may be something where you need to do this, actually sit down and think about it, maybe meet with some friends or family members, which could be really painful, by the way. But try to actually think about why do you believe what you believe? What do you believe Jesus really says, how we are supposed to live? And then actually look at your life, how you live, your actions, your attitudes, your, your schedule, how you spend your money, your relationships, your parenting, and do those things align. Like, could you actually sit down with Jesus and say, yeah, like, does this, does this align? And if it doesn't align, make some changes. Ask God to help you. One of the hard parts about faith, right, is it takes this thing called refinement, which sometimes can be really painful. And it takes time. I love the, the, the quote from Dallas Willard that uh, grace uh, is not, uh, grace, is, it, grace is opposed to earning, but not opposed to effort. 
that grace is not something that we earn. There's nothing that you do. There's no way that you live your life in which you can get more of God's love and his forgiveness and grace. However, there's nothing wrong with putting in a little bit of effort. In fact, the most important way to actually stay in close connection to God, to not build up separation from him, is to daily try to actually become more like him and do the right thing. So we have to align our allegiances to Christ with our actions or attitudes. Here's the second thing we can do. Intentionally make choices that will keep you humble. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to start uh, parking in the back of a parking lot. Uh, But I am saying I do think it's really important as a Christ follower to figure out some things that will make you feel humble. It might be engaging in a relationship that maybe you don't actually want to. (laughs) Maybe there's a neighbor who it drives you nuts that they always mow their lawn way too late. Maybe there's a coworker who it drives you nuts that they never clean out the microwave. Whatever it may be, maybe God's calling you to engage into a relationship like that that will bring you back to earth and remind you uh, as you get to know them that the love of God is there for them. Maybe you need to do small things of, 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 of choosing to serve on a regular basis or, or maybe choose to, 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 to give on a regular basis, something that would constantly remind you to have some level of sacrificialness in your life and remind you that you are not as important as maybe the world will try to make you think. And here's the last thing. Um, Love all people equally, just like Jesus. One of the most um, absurd things about Christianity, when I look at it in regards to all other faiths, is is one, we, we, we have a deity that is not distant and far away, but has come near. Oftentimes, deities are looking to look all-powerful and and, and are wanting to always look like they are the pomp and the prestige, and and yet we see Jesus, right? He humbles himself to die a sinner's death for us. And then what's wild is most other deities, too, it always goes back to the benefit being back to God. The deity. And yet when we think about it, we are basically robbing from God in the setup we got here. He gets us, which is what he wants, but we get him, which is more than we could ever imagine or ever deserve. One of the most awesome things is many other religions want to kind of compartmentalize into these small things, and one of the most beautiful things about Becoming a follower of Jesus is to realize that this isn't some sort of club that's in, it's, it's all about just inward focused on ourselves. One of the most beautiful pieces of when you really get the gospel is this idea that ultimately we're supposed to go back out there. And we're supposed to bring people back in. And the funny thing is, we've got to bring people in who don't deserve it, who don't want it, who are going to continue to fail. And one of the most beautiful things about it is it will remind us and teach us of God's grace and his patience and his mercy for us. And so if we want to be people of wisdom, may we take the faith that we have in a God who is unchanging and who is so good, and would our our actions actually align with it? Would our faith compel us to actually go and bring God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me, and the uh, band's going to come back out and sing one last song. And during this time, maybe this is your chance to make some sort of commitment to the Lord. Maybe it's uh, to just to follow him. Or maybe it's to say, I'm going to try to, Father, actually take the faith I proclaim and make how I live 
line together. Whatever it is this morning uh, that you feel like God is calling you to do, would you not miss this moment? And again, maybe there's something, an activity, something that he's calling you to engage in that will help you become a person of humility in some sort of way. Regardless, whatever it is, uh, would you just listen to your father? Would you guys bow your heads and close your eyes, and I'll lead us in prayer this morning. <laughs> father, we are so, um, so, so grateful for uh, just the way that you meet us exactly where we are. And Father, I am grateful for the fact that you are patient. Um, Father, over and over, uh, I am reminded uh, as I parent uh, two boys who sometimes uh, test my patience, I am grateful for how you are patient and loving and forgiving to me. And Father, this morning, I pray that you would um, remind us of the love that you have for us. Remind us to actually uh, realize how much you move mountains, you part seas just to be with us. And Father, would that love that you have for us compel us to be a person of love to others? Would we think of others more highly uh, than ourselves? Would we actually uh, desire above all else to follow through and live in a manner in which you have called us to live? Father, whatever it is that you want to say to us this morning, would you just give us the courage to follow you? Would you help us have the wisdom to live out whatever it is you've called us to, to live out? And Father, would we be people of sacrifice and surrender? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.